once again we come before you, Lord, humbled by the great reality that when we open up your word, you speak. And so, Father, we want to be reminded of that even now, and I pray that you would give us soft, teachable, tender hearts to your word as we continue to look at the Gospel of Mark together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're back. Started this series through the Gospel of Mark. And last week we began looking at verses 2 through 13 together. And today is part 2 of that message that we titled, Behold Our Suffering Servant Savior. Behold Our Suffering Servant Savior. And my brother Gilbert read the text earlier, so I pray that you were paying attention and that even during the week you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark to just familiarize yourself with the flow of thought uh, from Mark. One of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, uh, Jonathan Edwards, is a book titled The Excellency of Christ. The Excellency of Christ. And if you have um, been looking for a book to just uh, um, sink your teeth into, this is a great book. It's not a big book, but it's a very deep book, really focusing upon the importance of beholding Jesus and cherishing and treasuring Christ. And he writes this in the early 18th century in this book, The Excellency of Christ. In the person of Christ, we see infinite glory and lowest humility come together paradoxically and meet in, the, in his person. Jesus Christ is a lion in majesty and a lamb in meekness. Behold the lamb who instructs, supplies grace and comfort, coming to his own and manifesting himself to them by his spirit, souping with them at his table and enabling them to do that which pleases God. Behold the Lamb admitting His people to sweet communion with Him, enabling them with boldness and confidence to come to Him, and quieting their hearts with His peace. Behold Jesus Christ, who will come again and will appear as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will appear in infinite greatness and majesty, when He shall come again in glory with all His holy angels, and the earth shall tremble before Him, and the hills shall melt. The devils tremble at the thought of his appearance. And when the time comes, the kings and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men shall hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of mountains and shall cry to the mountains and rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face and wrath of the Lamb. Jesus Christ will at the same time appear as a lamb to his saints. He will receive them as friends and brethren, treating those who believe and have awaited his return with infinite mildness and love. The church shall be then admitted to him as his bride, and that shall be their wedding day. The saints shall all be sweetly invited to come with him to inherit the kingdom and reign with him in it for all eternity. Such beautiful words, isn't it? Concerning our Lord. And he goes on and on in this great book to just expand upon the glories of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, beloved, was a man who was absolutely enthralled and captivated by King Jesus. He wasn't a perfect man. It's like any other theologian in the history of mankind that you can read about that wrote these profound things concerning the person of God. He was a man who was flawed just like us, and yet he saturated his mind in God's Word so that he would grow to treasure Jesus more and more and more throughout his lifetime. You know, that was the early church as well. In the early church in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, it says that after he had risen from the dead, he appeared to the church, to the early disciples, for a period or interval of 40 days, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God and manifesting himself to them in his risen state. 
And the reason why Jesus did that is because he was about to commission his church for the mission of making disciples. And if they did not grasp who he was in his risen state, in his, in his soon-to-be-glorified state, they would lose heart on their mission. They, would, they were going to be persecuted. They were going to be opposed. The early church was. And if they didn't have a grasp of who Jesus was in his glory, they would potentially lose heart. And eventually they did a little bit, didn't they? But they were reminded again and again of the glory of the risen Christ. That's how important it is to behold Jesus. Christ himself revealed to his, himself to his disciples after rising from the dead so that they would be so captivated by him so as to be compelled towards his, his mission of making disciples. And I submit to you that unless we are captivated by Jesus, we will not uh, sense the sense of urgency to share Jesus with other people, beginning with those in our household, out in our communities, in whatever um, work, uh, jobs God has given us, out in society. What drives people to tell others about Jesus Christ is the fact that you are enthralled with Jesus Christ yourself in your own heart, right? And so that's why we're studying the book of Mark. We're studying the book of Mark to behold this Christ. This Christ who is the image of God. Who is the exact representation of God's nature. This Jesus that if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. Jesus, you behold Christ. And showing us Jesus is Mark's passion. Mark's passion. We see this in the first verse in the title for his gospel In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he writes about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is his grand theme. Mark has believed in Christ. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he himself, experientially speaking, had a collision with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Mark writes, as one who has seen the power of Christ in the hearts and lives of the early church, his mother, according to Acts chapter 12, hosted the early church in prayer meetings. So he was exposed to the preaching of the early church, and Christ was magnified before his very presence in the testimony of the early church. Mark has seen the grace of Christ in men like Barnabas, his cousin, who was a great example of a man who gave his life for the purposes of Jesus. And men like Paul, whom Mark had an opportunity to interact with and to serve at the end of his life. And especially, Mark has seen the glory of Christ lived out in the life of Peter. Peter, who had a profound impact upon him. If you remember, it was Peter who Mark interacted with, especially towards the end of Peter's life before he was martyred, who became, from a human level, Mark's primary source for writing this gospel. And so he pens this gospel to... Have us behold Jesus Christ. Now, similar to the other gospel writers that we have said and seen, Mark presents Jesus from his own unique perspective, doesn't he? Mark 10.45 is really the theme verse of the gospel of Mark, which says this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant Savior who has come to please His Father here on this earth, and who came, please hear me, also in humility to serve fellow mankind and to save people from their sins. He served us in so many different ways when He was on, here on earth, but none greater 
than going to the cross and dying for the sins of sinners such as you and I. He was the suffering servant Savior. Now, as Mark begins his book, we began looking at this last week, that he tells us that as Jesus begins his public ministry, there were three events of great significance in preparation for his ministry, for his public ministry. These three events in the life of our Lord show him, from Mark's own perspective, to be our extraordinary servant Savior. Yes, Jesus was a man, but he was more than just a man. And Mark wants to show us that he was extraordinary, that he was unique, that he was, as his, the title verse in his gospel says, he was the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. He was extraordinary. We saw, first of all, that he was foretold by Scripture. He was foretold by Scripture. That is the, uh, through the witness of John the Baptist in history, but foretold by Holy Scripture. That is what makes him extraordinary. As Mark begins his gospel, we saw that he asserts that his gospel, his good news concerning Jesus, is not something new in God's plan. Jesus coming to earth, beloved, wasn't an afterthought in God's mind. This good news of Christ is, is something in fulfillment of his promises. And he, and he shows us this by quoting from two different prophets in verses 2 and 3 from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and verse 2. And in verse 3 from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Prophets who wrote 400 years before Mark writes in the case of Malachi. And Isaiah 700 years before Mark writes. They wrote of a messenger. One, a voice that would come in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. To prepare the way of the Messiah. And Mark is saying, this gospel, this good news is nothing new. In fact, in verse 4, we see that in history, here shows up this voice, this messenger, and the person's name is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, who according to the great custom of ancient messengers, would go ahead, who would go ahead of a general or monarch to, to prepare the roads and announce the king's coming. John the Baptist did that for Jesus. He was the messenger who would prepare the way for Christ. And he did this in a twofold way. In his own life, John the Baptist did. On the one hand, he, ha he, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came to spiritually prepare the people for the long-awaited Messiah. And he called people to repentance. He called people to recognize that they were sinners that needed to confess their sins, including his Jewish brethren, by the way. All people, it says... In verse 5, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John the Baptist was calling everybody to repentance. Those who wore their heart on their sleeves, so to speak, especially the non-Jews, the Gentiles, but also those who were self-righteous, who trusted in their own works to be justified before God. He called everybody to repentance. Jesus will preach the same message if you notice in chapter 1, verse 14. After John is taken into custody, Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice there, repent and believe. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin, if you will. If you're going to receive Christ, the Messiah, then you must turn away from yourself. If you're going to embrace someone else, you must turn away from something else, right? 
Similar to when you are married. If you're going to embrace that one that God has brought to your life, then you need to turn, turn away from a life of independence and freedom, right? Of individuality, if you will. Now you, have to, now you are you're, um, in a covenant coming together with somebody else. So you're turning to, committing to somebody by turning away from a life of freedom and independence. In a greater way, that's the, the issue in, the, in, in life, isn't it? When we embrace Christ, we must turn away from our sin, from living a life of self-idolatry and self-worship to now living a life to exalt Jesus Christ. And beloved, as in John's day, as I said last week, so in our day, repentance is necessary for people to be saved from God's wrath. It's very possible for people to attend church for many years, to be serving in church, And even to have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but not have truly repented of their sins and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, committed their lives to Him, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and been saved. It's very possible to have been in church for a long time and to be living a double life, to be indifferent to Jesus Christ, to not cherish and treasure Him. And even in Mark's Gospel, we're going to see That over and over again, you see these crowds, these masses that are following after Jesus. And many of these multitudes are not following Jesus because they've turned from their sins and believed in Jesus and cherish Him for who He is, but because they want His gifts. They don't love the giver. They love the gifts and the benefits that come from following Jesus, physically speaking. They're not willing to pay the price to follow Christ. They didn't find Jesus to be precious, to be treasured to be more valuable than their sin. And as a result, there were many who went away not saved from their sins, didn't receive forgiveness for their sins. So John the Baptist comes spiritually preparing the people with this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but he also comes pointing people to Jesus, witnessing concerning Christ as the, as the promised king. In the parallel um, uh, um, account in John chapter 1, remember when the crowds are keep coming to, to John the Baptist and even telling him that this one Jesus is making more disciples than him. John the Baptist keeps saying, Behold, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one. He is God's chosen one. I am not the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, right? He keeps pointing to Jesus Christ. Just like the... Messengers in the olden days and ancient times announcing the coming of the king. Here he is. We're not the point. Jesus is the point, right? And something that we learn about John the Baptist, beloved, that as intriguing as a figure as John the Baptist was, he understood that he wasn't the point. Without Jesus, he didn't have a mission. Without Jesus Christ, really he had no meaning for existence. From the very time that he was born... He was chosen to be Jesus Christ's special messenger. And we might look at that and we might think, well, that was John the Baptist. And there are certain characters in the Bible that were specially called and commissioned to have a particular role in, in the gospel. But not us. Listen to me. Every single one of us born into this world has a mission. And that mission is to glorify God and enjoy Him in this life and forever, right? Sin hinders us from doing that. But when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we live life now in fulfillment of God's purposes for us to exalt Jesus and to not elevate ourselves. 
John the Baptist is a perfect example of that. I am not the Son of God. I am not the Messiah. He must increase and I must decrease, right? John chapter 3, verse 30. Can I submit to you that that is a story of every Christian in this room? We are not called to be making life about us. We are called to exalt Jesus and to make much of Him, right? And that is what glorifies and, and, and makes much of God the Father. God the Father is glorified when His Son is made much of in the power of the Spirit on this earth through His people, right? That's why we're here. That Jesus would increase and we must decrease. We're no longer called to live for ourselves but to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. If John the Baptist as a secondary application is anything to us, his example, it is this, that he lived to decrease while Jesus increased in his life. So Jesus is extraordinary in that he was foretold by Holy Scripture in verses 2 through 8. And we saw also that he was extraordinary or is extraordinary because he was approved or affirmed by God, the triune God, if I can put it that way. Jesus is baptized in verses 9 through 11, not because he's a sinner who needed to repent, beloved. Why was Jesus baptized? There are many other reasons that have been posed, but here are two primary ones right here. Because by being baptized, Jesus identified himself with sinners who repent and believe in him, right? He identified himself with sinners as our representative throughout his whole life, including at his baptism. Secondly, by his baptism, Jesus formally initiated his public ministry. He formally initiated his public ministry. And we see this in two ways, that Jesus' ministry was inaugurated sort of in the same way that a, a, a president in an inauguration ceremony, that ceremony marks the beginning of a president's tenure in office, Right? That's what is taking place here in this monumental event of Jesus being baptized. This is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And he receives the ultimate approval, doesn't he? A voice came out of the heavens in verse 11. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. God the Father tells his son and announces to everybody, this is my son. He, I delight in him. I take pleasure in my son. That is an expression in history, beloved, that is recorded for us on the pages of Scripture that has been true for all eternity. The Father has always loved His Son from all eternity. And out of the overflow of that love, He has created humanity to be an expression of that love as well. The Father loves His Son, and He proclaims this in approving and affirming His Son in verse 11. This is my Son, the Beloved. And also notice that in this inauguration of Jesus' ministry, he's empowered. In verse 11, it says, or verse 10, it says that immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now notice what it says there, the Spirit like a dove descended upon Jesus. It didn't indwell him. Some people say, well, is this the first time then that the Spirit of God actually empowered Jesus? No, no. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 3 speaks about the fact that the Messiah who would come, the, the Spirit of God would rest upon this Messiah. Jesus lived his whole life in the power and independence upon the Holy Spirit. This is merely here 
Um, the spirit of God, like a dove, as a dove, visibly being seen, symbolizing, showing the fact that God has approved this to be his son, and Jesus is beginning his public ministry. But the spirit had empowered Jesus his whole life, and his whole life he had lived it in the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice the beauty of what takes place in Jesus' baptism. There's Trinitarian affirmation and approval, if you will. The Son comes to fulfill His mission, right? In fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. The Father approves or affirms His Son. And the Spirit comes upon Him, signaling Him out as this is the one, empowering Him for His public ministry. The Trinity is so involved here, all in unity. This is a mission that from before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ would come into the world. Now it's being fulfilled in in history itself as far as his public ministry goes, right? So we see that Jesus is an extraordinary person and that he was affirmed or received the approval of God. The approval of God. Thirdly, thirdly, we want to see this morning verses 12 and 13. We see that Jesus is an extraordinary person and that he triumphed against the attacks of Satan. He triumphed against the attacks of Satan. What you would expect after an inauguration like this, if you will, and the baptism of Jesus, is that hey, maybe there's going to be a great celebration. A great parade after Jesus has been told from heaven that he is the Son of God and he's been empowered for his public ministry from the Spirit. You would expect a great feast of honor to pronounce the the king before the world, right? But instead, notice what happens here. Mark presents Jesus as getting right to work against his chief enemy and the chief enemy of mankind, right? Satan, the serpent of old from Genesis chapter 3. Lucifer, he refers to him here as Satan, adversary, adversary. And this is going to be an ongoing theme in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, beloved, is constantly doing battle with evil, constantly combating demons, constantly combating sin, constantly combating the world system and the world's thinking, constantly combating self-righteousness and people who trust in their own works. And that is just as evil as explicit sin, if you will. Why is Jesus constantly in combat against these things? Because the kingdom of darkness doesn't love the kingdom of light which Jesus ushers in, right? They are against one another. And so from the very outset, before Jesus begins his public ministry, look at what verse 12 tells us, that at once, immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. The angels ministering to him, by the way, in there, um, it wasn't just at the end, as Matthew or Luke seemed to indicate, that they came at the end when he was weakest. It's it's a, a verb that emphasizes that the angels were with him throughout the course of the 40 days, including at the end in the climactic peak of those temptations. But Jesus is impelled by the Spirit of God, verse 12, to go out into the wilderness. How anticlimactic, huh? How anticlimactic that instead of a feast or, a, or some parade, Jesus goes right to work. Why? So that he might defeat Satan, right? He might defeat Satan on our behalf. Now, Mark doesn't expand on too many details here. He's very quick and to the point. 
But what he does tell us is that this was according to God's will and purpose. That's what that verb there in verse 12, the Spirit impelled him, implies. Impelled means to throw out or to force somebody out there. The ESV puts it, the Spirit drove him out. And the NIV puts it, the Spirit sent him. The point with those translations is not that Jesus is being forced out against his, his will to do something that he didn't come to do, but that this battle with Satan, beloved, was of divine necessity. It was according to God's predetermined will. It was God's plan all along that Jesus would be tested by Satan. And I say that because some people, even people that I read in these, some of these commentaries, like, oh no, poor Jesus, poor Jesus, oh no, he couldn't help it. Satan being the God of this world, Jesus could not help it. And he was, he was taken into the wilderness and forced in there, right? And obviously he overcame in the process, but he was forced away to do this. Oh no, listen. What this verb tells us is that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness like a servant, which is the theme of Mark, right? And it was according to the will of God, all by God's design. All by God's design. That's why the angels are ministering to Jesus throughout the 40 days. God is with him. Nevertheless, it was a real test. A real test. Some people, when they think about Jesus' two natures, that he was God, or he is God, and that he also added humanity to his deity during his earthly life, that he is God and that he is human, think of the temptation as, well, of course he overcame. He's God. He's God. Can I remind us of this? We should never so overemphasize Jesus' deity at the expense of his humanity. This was a real test, beloved. A real test by our suffering Savior King here at the temptation. And notice, it's in Satan's home court, isn't it? It's in the wilderness, most people believe this is an area that was known as the devastation because it was known as an area that was a wasteland where no human life could be sustained. In fact, Mark's mention of wild animals, if you notice, or wild beasts in verse 13 may support this, that this was an area that was desolate, that was dangerous. One commentator writes this concerning wild animals appearing in verse 13. The place abounded with wild boars, jackals, wolves, foxes, leopards, and hyenas. This accentuates Jesus' utter loneliness. He was far from human habitation in a place where the wild beasts prowled at liberty. Some people also believe that Mark mentions wild beasts here, um, which is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels, because he's writing to Roman Christians who would have well understood the danger of wild animals used in their own Olympic games. So he's appealing even to them, but this is, this is a desolate place. This is a place of loneliness and danger. This is Satan's domain. In sports, we call this home court or home field advantage, right? My kids and I, not too long ago, were, I was trying to show them what real basketball was like back in the 80s when the Lakers were going against the Celtics, right? Some of you remember that? Can I get an amen to that? That was real basketball. None of this wimpy stuff today, right? It's all about money and all of that. I mean, if you had Lakers, the Lakers would be Lakers for 10 plus years and the Celtics and the Pistons and all of that, right? We were watching, not too long ago, uh, clips of some of these games, and in one particular game, it was crazy. The, Celtics go, the Lakers going into the Boston Garden to play the Celtics. And I mean, that place was hostile. You remember some of that? Hostile environment. 
the roaring of the crowd, the chants all over the place, people yelling obscenities, right, at the, the Lakers who are walking in before the game even begins, throwing drinks and throwing stuff at them. It was a hostile, intimidating environment. Beloved, can you picture a million times in a greater way that kind of hostile environment out in the wilderness? A place of Satan's domain. It was no paradise. The first Adam was tempted in paradise, but the second Adam, Jesus, was tempted out in the wilderness. The first Adam was tempted amidst abundant resources, but the second Adam, Jesus, was tempted in desolation, in famine, in loneliness. This was an uninhabited place, a wasteland full of danger and terror and hostility against our Lord. Jesus was isolated away from any human life that he had known for 30 years. Remember, for 30 years, he's already lived his life. Grew up in Nazareth as a carpenter. He knew people. People knew him. He had the, the, the community of people around him. Here, he is in utter isolation from a human standpoint. And he's out in the wilderness. The situation didn't favor him at all. If that would have been us, we would have fallen the first day, Right? Maybe the first testing. And if that wasn't enough, this, this isolated situation that's dangerous out in the wilderness, he faced the ultimate antagonistic enemy, an adversary who was Satan, who was eager and ready to assault him. Notice the all-out onslaught in verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. You say, where is the all-out onslaught? There's not very much detail given to us in verse 13. Well, you need to pay attention to the grammar there. You need to let this sink in. This happened for 40 days. One in the morning. Two in the morning. Three in the morning. Four in the morning. Five in the morning. Midday. At nighttime. When our Lord, as a human being, was tired and exhausted from an all-day, all-out onslaught. 40 days, beloved. And the verb there is that he, is, he was continually testing Jesus. Present tense verb. Emphasizing that these testings were ongoing, continuous, relentless. They were intense. Have you ever pondered our Lord, blameless, perfect, innocent, and the degree of intensity of these testings or temptations for somebody who has never, ever even known what sin feels like. Intense, ongoing, relentless. And there's no rest for our Lord. There's no rest. It wasn't like Satan was gracious, right? You know what? After an eight-hour day, Jesus, why don't you take a break? Go be refreshed. Get some water, get some food, go refresh yourself. Today you've had enough, we'll get back into it tomorrow, okay? No. It was an all-out, non-stop attack. All-out attack. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Imagine a relentless, roaring lion constantly after his prey, not resting until he gets what he wants, right? That is Satan coming after our Lord here in the temptation. By the way, as if the 40 days weren't enough, Matthew and Luke tell us that this all climaxed with three temptations at the end when he was at his weakest point, right? When he was hungry. Do you remember the temptations? 
Jesus is hungry. Command that these stones, Jesus, become bread. In other words, provide for yourself. Right? Don't depend upon God. Remember Jesus' response? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? Quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Remember the second temptation? Takes him to the pinnacle of the city of Jerusalem, this pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. God has promised you, according to that great psalm, that He is going to protect you, right? Presume upon God. Put His word to the test. And what did Jesus respond? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? Deuteronomy, another quotation from Scripture. And then the third one, all the kingdoms, Jesus, that you see, they are all mine. I will give them to you if you will fall down and worship me. And what did Jesus respond, beloved? No, 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 no. I'm not going to put anybody above God, right? I'm not going to commit idolatry. I'm going to worship God alone. Three temptations at the end of his 40 days when he was at his weakest point. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you even imagine what it would be like to just face Satan directly? In physical form. Directly for one day. None of us would be able to stand, beloved. In fact, our very lives show that we haven't. Because from the very point of conception, we are by nature sinners, aren't we? And from the very time that we even begin to be conscious of life itself, we are already disobedient to God. We are already hating people. We are already doing evil to others and speaking evil about others and disobeying God. We already show that we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, right? Only Jesus is perfect. And only Jesus perfectly withstood Satan's onslaughts. None of us would be able to stand But this is Mark's point, isn't it? That if Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and He is indeed, verse 1, the Son of God, and He is coming to establish an earthly kingdom, excuse me, He had to triumph over Satan, didn't He? He had to. Otherwise, He's not who He says He is. If Satan causes him to fall just like the first Adam, Jesus is not who he says he is. But indeed, beloved, and glory to God that he triumphed, didn't he? He triumphed over sin and temptation. Why is this significant for us? Why is the the victory of Jesus, not only in his temptation, but his whole life, To the very point that he rose from the dead, why is that significant for us? I submit to you, first of all, it's significant for us because of our redemption. Because our redemption was at stake, beloved. If Jesus would have fallen, we would have no perfect Redeemer, right? No perfect Redeemer. No blameless, spotless Lamb who goes to the cross to die for sinners, taking upon the wrath of God for our sins on the cross, we wouldn't have had a sacrifice that was worthy, that qualified to die for sinners such as us. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and brokenness, didn't he? All we got to do is look around in the, at the world around us. The world is not as it should be, right? It's broken, beloved. There's human depravity everywhere, explicit and implicit. Everywhere. 
And yet Jesus, the second Adam, withstood the onslaught of Satan to bring a broken world back to its original condition someday, right? The way that it began in paradise. Jesus overcame the onslaught of Satan his whole life so that we as sinners could actually have a sinless, spotless lamb in whom we can believe in and trust in and be saved from our sins, you see. It's important for our redemption, for our redemption. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive who believe in him, right? Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, capital O, Christ, the many will be made righteous. We know that's by faith, by trusting in Jesus, by embracing him, receiving him, you can be righteous as Christ is, right? Clothed in his righteousness, you can be forgiven of your sins, you can be reconciled to your creator by faith in Christ. All because of what Jesus did in his perfect life, perfect death, where he scored a 10. You cannot improve upon a perfect life and a perfect death where he fully satisfied God's wrath for our sins. You cannot improve upon that, right? You just cannot. And the resurrection, as somebody has said, was God's amen to Jesus' perfect work. His perfect work. Beloved, the fact that Jesus triumphed in his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, not only the temptation, means that we can be secure in Jesus. And even as Christians, when we fail and we fail every single day, you understand that Jesus is your righteousness. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation if you believed and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. You cannot lose your salvation. He was protected by the power of God, cannot be let go by that Almighty God, right? Otherwise, we're saying something about His power and His inability to hold you until the end. We are secure in Christ because Jesus was victorious and He scored a perfect 10 that he triumphed in his whole life. Not only his temptation is significant also for our sanctification. Not only for our redemption, but also for our sanctification. That ongoing, lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus as Christians. Oh, beloved, think about Jesus. Fully God, but also fully and really a human being. Really man. How did Jesus live in his humanity? He lived as a man who was God-dependent, right? He depended upon the Spirit. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that before he went into the temptation, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was a man of prayer, wasn't he? Do a survey sometime of the Gospels and write out how many times Jesus is seen praying, being a man who is dependent upon his heavenly Father for divine strengthening. Jesus is seen praying publicly, praying privately, praying by himself, praying with others, making his decisions by prayer, difficult decisions. He would pray about those decisions. When he was busy, he would pray. In response to pain and suffering, And the spiritual decadence around him, he would pray. He was constantly a man in prayer. Was that just for show? Did he know, you know, one day four Gospels are going to be written about it. And I want everybody to think that I was a man of prayer. So I'm going to make sure that I do this. No, he really depended upon his heavenly father, didn't he? 
was truly human and truly God. And so he is our example, beloved. He's our example in our sanctification that we need in this battle against sin in our lives. We need to be God-dependent people who are walking by the Spirit of Christ, right? We need to be people who recognize that we are in a spiritual war. That's how, how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6. You know what life comes down to? It is spiritual warfare that you guys are a part of, Ephesian Christians. And you need God's resources. And in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, he talks about the resource that is prayer, right? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all petition and prayer for all the saints. All of these alls to emphasize the fact that we need to be God-dependent people in the midst of spiritual warfare. Christ was an example of that. And in our ongoing battle against sin and our sanctification, we need to be people who are spirit-empowered, people who are saturating our minds with the Word of God. That's the other thing we learn about Him, right? How did Jesus withstand the onslaughts of Satan at the climax of the, the temptation? And perhaps that was the, case, the way that Jesus did it the whole 40 days. We don't know that for sure, but we know that in the climactic point when he was tempted those three times, how did he, he, he withstand the onslaughts of Satan with Holy Scripture, right? Gegreptai. It stands written. It stands written. It stands written. Three different quotations from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, it stands written Satan this. It stands written this. It stands written this. Now let me tell you something. Jesus didn't have a MacArthur study Bible at the time, okay? Right? I know that that may be shocking to some of you. What? He didn't have a study Bible? How did he know scripture? He memorized it. He saturated his heart and mind with the very words of his Father, right? So that Jesus didn't pull out some iPhone or iPod, but it was in his very heart so that he was able to answer Satan in a very skillful way and stand firm for the sake of dying for our sins, beloved. That's what we learn from our Lord. And perhaps some of us, if we realized how much our spiritual stability and vitality, not our eternal security as Christians, for we cannot lose our salvation, but how much our spiritual stability and vitality is dependent upon our daily intake of the Word of God and saturation with the Word of God, then we would run to the Word all the more, wouldn't we? See, some of you think, oh, you know, some of you guys are always talking about Bible reading. Oh, some of you guys are always talking about getting a part of, being a part of a Bible study. Come on, I already know enough. Listen, you know what that is? That's pride. That's arrogance on your part. Because we need to be people who are constantly saturating ourselves, immersing ourselves with the Word of God. Why? Because we are in a spiritual war every single day, aren't we? Every single day. Our Lord was an example to us of that understanding. He knew that he was, he was constantly being attacked by, ultimately, the spiritual realm. All we see is the physical realm, beloved. But how oftentimes do you recognize that you are in a spiritual battle? If there's something that temptation reminds us of, the testing of Jesus Christ for 40 days, and then after that, of course, is that we are in a cosmic spiritual war, you understand. 
Your spouse, your kid, your friend, your brother or sister in Christ, your boss is not the ultimate issue you understand. We are in a spiritual war fought on the arena of, yes, human life, visible things that we can see. But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk or live in the flesh, this body he's talking about, we do not war according to the flesh, according to physical things. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses was he talking about? Ideas, ideologies, spiritual fortresses, beloved. That's what he was talking about. He says, listen, there's a physical realm. But ultimately, the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, right? So that he triumphed was significant for our redemption, for our sanctification. Can I remind us of this also? That he triumphed in his temptation is significant also for our ongoing encouragement, beloved. For our ongoing encouragement. In our battle against sin, we can be comforted. That because Jesus was triumphant, he's able to be our sympathetic high priest, right? Our sympathetic high priest who understands what we go through. And listen, who was victorious so he can actually help us. Oftentimes we go to people who really, who they're, they're going through even worse issues in their own life. And it doesn't mean that we can't pray together and come alongside of each other. But you know, you know what? They can't help me because they haven't even gained victory over that in their own life. Jesus is a perfect high priest who actually, as a human being, yes, being God himself, but as a human being, actually overcame sin in the flesh, right? He's victorious. So, when you hear Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, Christ, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, now it makes sense why he says this, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Not the throne of condemnation. Not the throne of reproach. Not the throne of judgment. Or here comes Campus Hernandez again. Oh, jeez. The throne of grace. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to Jesus, beloved, because you know what He's going to give us? He's going to give us mercy. That is Jesus not giving us what we deserve, namely punishment and penalty, but mercy. And we're going to find grace at the foot of the cross. Jesus giving us what we do not deserve, namely His favor and His blessing, you see. In time of need, because Jesus overcame sin, He can help us. He can help us overcome sin as well. Isn't it interesting that He came and added humanity to His deity? Why? So that He might experience our own weaknesses and yet still thunderously be victorious because now He's able to understand us, right, when we come to Him as believers. C.H. Spurgeon writes this, Oh, I want to persuade you to approach our great high priest. Oh, how I long that many of you who have in the present never known the love of Christ may not be touched with a sense of it and may be sweetly drawn to Him. By the very fact that he is able to sympathize with you in your griefs, I hope that those of you who are afflicted may be induced to draw near to him. Oh, that upon this spot, at this very hour, you who have been halting and hesitating for years may at once find a shelter with the compassionate one. 
He waits to give you everlasting comfort. Oh, that you would believe in Him and enjoy Him. We shall pray for this and look for it. And may God grant us our desires so that His Son Jesus may be glorified as our High Priest. End quote. You know what else strikes me about these three great events of our Lord? His utter humility. His utter humility. You know, Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming, by coming to earth as a man. And he humbled himself to the very point of death, even death on a cross. And he's talking there about Jesus' condescension. That though he was king or he is king, he condescended by coming to earth to take upon our vulnerabilities and weaknesses upon himself, yet be perfect and be able to die for sinners. Jesus condescended to a great extent, beloved, so that we might have a Savior. Just think about Jesus' condescension. He subjected himself to human parents. Were Mary and Joseph perfect, you think? No. No, he subjected himself to human parents. Though a king, he subjected himself for 30 years to human weakness and testings of all sorts. Imagine Jesus' 30 years of life. We don't get any details after his initial stage of, of his birth and all of that. He was 12 years old until later on, right? But imagine his whole life. He experienced testings and weaknesses of all sorts, and yet he still was blameless and perfect and sinless. He never sinned, but he subjected himself to a whole life until the age of 30 years old, living on this earth. Then he subjected himself to Satan at the temptation, 40 days of, of onslaught by, by the and attacks of the enemy, Satan, the adversary. Then there was the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is wrestling in agony, sweating drops of blood. But not my will, but your will be done, my Father. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, and the days, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. You think that was just Jesus doing that for show? It's a real human being. It's sinless and spotless, but he subjected himself to this. He chose this path for the glory of his father. Through it all, he remained subject to his father's will to die. And then came the rejection after the temptation. You know this. All Jesus experienced for the most part was rejection and then beatings and then disrespectful slaps on the face, spit upon, ridiculed. His own disciples temporarily turned their backs on him. No one was with him in that last moment before breathing his last. Then came that death on the cross, subjecting himself to humiliation and pain at the hands of men. And then the ultimate pain, beloved, as if this wasn't enough. He experienced separation from his father at the cross of Calvary for sinners, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on at that moment? For the first time, Jesus experienced separation from his Father. Different and in contrast to the eternal communion and fellowship that he had experienced from all eternity. At that moment, he is the sin bearer who's taking upon our sins upon himself and the fullness of God's wrath for your sins and for my sins upon himself to the point where his Father turned his back on him momentarily. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
All of this showed his great humility, didn't it? His great humility. So that when Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, he says, as shameful as a cross was, that was Jesus' choice for death. He's the king. He's the great one. He's the one that has existed with his father and the spirit for all eternity. This is what he chose to do, beloved. That's why Mark presents him as a suffering servant savior, right? And why did he do it all? Why did he condescend, beloved, to this point? Well, I think it's twofold. First and foremost, it was for the glory and honor of his father, right? To glorify God. Jesus perfectly fulfilled his father's will on this earth. But also think about this. He did it for you and I. He did it for sinners. He went through all of that and condescended 33 years in human life and perfectly obeyed his father and died for sinners on a, on a cross in a gruesome way. Why? So that he could love you and I and be able to forgive us, right? So that God's wrath may be satisfied for our sins, be fully paid. It is finished. It is done, right? It is done. So that if you and I believe in Jesus Christ, if we embrace Christ, if we receive him, if we cherish and treasure him above anything that this life has to offer, materialism, passing pleasures of this world, this world, our lusts, if we submit everything to him and receive him and treasure him as the pearl of great price, he will forgive us, he will save us, right? Jonathan Edwards writes this. Would you choose for a friend a person like Christ with such dignity? It is a thing common to our experience in this world to have those for our friends who are much above us because we look upon ourselves honored by their friendship. Thus how a young inferior maid would be pleased to have a great and excellent prince to give his dear love to her. This is the stuff of fairy tales. But Christ is infinitely above you. And above all the princes of the earth for he is king of kings. So honorable a person as this offers himself to you in the nearest and dearest friendship. Christ will himself give himself to you by faith with all those various excellencies that paradoxically meet together in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. He will forever after treat you as his friend, as his dear friend, and you shall always be where he is and shall behold his glory and dwell with him in most free and intimate communion and enjoyment. This is the Christ that we want to continue to see on the pages of the Gospel of Mark, beloved. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, how amazing and extraordinary is Jesus. We marvel at His glory and His humility. And Father, we pray that we would find Him the all-satisfying and all-sufficient One in our lives and that our lives would show it, our demeanor, of joy and peace and love towards others would show the fact that we want to exalt this Christ above anything in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.